Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. I want to hook on to some things that we said last Sunday morning when we were together. We were talking about our healing atonement, and this would be part two of that message. In Isaiah 53, everybody agrees. There is no controversy. There is no debate, no dispute in any way whatsoever. Everybody accepts Isaiah 53 as the messianic chapter. In other words, it is the most consolidated information about what Jesus would come to the earth to do as our sacrifice and as our substitute. I'm going to start in verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Folks, right out of the gate, it tells us that believing has something to do with the power of God. Believing the report or believing the word brings the arm of the Lord on the scene. And that's always representative of his power. Verse 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. That word sorrows is literally the word pains. And acquainted with grief. The word grief is sickness. The word acquainted means to know. It's the word that's first used in Genesis chapter 3. When the devil tempts Adam and Eve and influences them to doubt what God said. And he responds by saying, God does know that your eyes will be opened. You shall not surely die. God knows that your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God seeing good and evil. That's this word acquainted. It's also used when it says Adam knew his wife Eve and conceived a son. So it's talking about relationship. It's talking about a connection. So here were the translators um, translated as weakly as possible, in my opinion. He's a man acquainted with sickness. It means there's a relationship between Jesus and sickness. It means there's a God-given, God-ordained connection. I'm not sure relationship is the right way to say it, but I'm searching for words that identify the connection between Jesus the Messiah, and sickness and disease. So he's a man of sorrows or pains, connected with griefs or sickness, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, notice that word surely. It's the only time this word's used in the chapter. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Again, griefs is sickness. Sorrows is pain. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Folks, the controversy about healing in the body of Christ is whether or not healing is in the atonement. Now, the church world, and this has been true for hundreds of years, it's certainly true today. Much of the church world goes into doctrinal contortions to try to explain away why these simple verses that talk about Jesus and his relationship with sickness and disease don't mean that he paid the price for sickness and disease for everybody. The church has come up with elaborate explanations about what does and doesn't belong to us. Because for some, it seems, the notion that Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease is just too much for them to accept. Now, folks, the question is, is healing in the atonement? <clears throat> the atonement, the word atonement is an Old Testament word. It's only used one time or only translated into the English one time in the New Testament. And it's really not 
the same word of the same meaning. Redemption is a New Testament term. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. But the atonement was spoken of a lot in the Old Testament, <clears throat> specifically because God wanted man to understand the fact that without a sacrifice, without, a blood, without blood being shed, there was no possibility for man to have any righteousness or any standing with God whatsoever. And so there are examples of healing in the Old Testament. Jesus certainly healed the sick when he was here on the earth. But the issue, again, very simply, is is healing in the atonement? Now, here's why that's important. If healing is in the atonement or if healing was accomplished by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, then that means healing is available for anybody and everybody just simply through faith. See, those that don't believe that healing is a part of what Jesus did, they're very strong and they're very specific in their belief that Jesus paid the price for our sins. And because he paid the price for our sins, they say, rightly so, they say that salvation or forgiveness of sins can be received by anybody simply by faith. In other words, forgiveness of sins is for everyone because Jesus paid the price in the atonement for our sins and transgressions. But if healing was in the atonement too, then that would mean that healing would be available to anybody and everybody simply by acting in faith in the same way as for the forgiveness of sins. See, it settles the will of God once and for all. If healing is in the atonement, it settles the will of God concerning sickness and disease forever and for everybody. So here's the question that we posed, the second question that we posed last week, and we want to continue a little bit further this morning, is if healing is not part of the atonement, why do the Old Testament types, remember Paul said the Old Testament and the things that happened to Israel were for examples, they're types and shadows for us as examples for us to understand God and God's will and God's purpose. So if healing was not a part of the atoning work of Jesus, why are there so many times that healing is connected with atonements that were made? Why are there so many examples of, and types of what Jesus fulfilled for us through his sacrifice, his substitutionary work on the cross? Why are there so many connections? Now we talked about what some of them were. Real quickly, let me go through those. The first one we looked at was the Passover. You remember the Passover was when Egypt held Israel in bondage. And through these mighty signs and wonders, God displayed to Pharaoh his power. And the last of the plagues was the death of the firstborn. And the protection that was offered to Israel was the shedding of the lamb's blood, putting it over the doorpost and the sidepost of the door. eating the meat for the strength of their journey, God knowing and God revealing to them that, that Pharaoh would relent and finally let the people of Israel go. The Bible says that God brought them forth, however many millions there were, between two and seven million are the, the common estimates. So for these millions of people, however many million there were, there was not one feeble among them. He brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. Do you realize the impossibility of that as, as just a natural course of nature? How are you going to get two to seven million people together and not have anybody sick? The Bible tells us that Christ was our Passover sacrifice for us. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, about how that many were weak and sickly among the church, and many had died prematurely. And he gives the reason as not discerning the Lord's body, not understanding the true meaning of the communion elements, the cup which was his blood that was shed for sins, but also his body was broken. He took upon himself stripes. He was beaten severely in Pilate's court. And with those stripes, the Bible says we were healed. Now, in case somebody might think that's far-fetched, 
the idea that healing came through the Passover. Healing for Israel came through the Passover. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 that 765 years after the Passover was instituted, Hezekiah becomes king of Israel. And he reinstitutes the Passover. And the Bible says that God hearkened unto Hezekiah and healed all of Israel. So we have specific information about that type, the Old Testament type of the Passover, which was fulfilled in Jesus as bringing physical healing to the body of Israel. The second thing we looked at was in Leviticus chapter 14 and 15. And the details of how the leper is to receive his healing through the atonement. And we went through the tedious over and over again, scripture after scripture, long chapters. The tedious nature and the details for the atonement to be made for the leper who was cleansed. So there again we have the fulfillment of the type. Jesus who fulfilled that type and, exam and gave us examples of it while he was here on the earth where the healing of the leper was concerned. The third thing that we looked at, and remember, remember the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. We went through three last week. We'll go through two more today. But the third one we looked at was the year of Jubilee. Now you remember that Jesus identified in, in Luke chapter 4 when he's in his own hometown of Nazareth that the Holy Ghost had anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor, deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and healing for all those that were bruised. Then at the end of it, that's Isaiah 61 that he's reading from. And at the end of it, he said that he was anointed by the Holy Ghost to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, he didn't give all of Isaiah's prophecy because Isaiah's prophecy covered both the tribulation and the millennial periods. So he skipped over the part that didn't apply to him at that point in time. But one of the things that he said what he was anointed for was to preach the year of Jubilee. That is the acceptable year of the Lord. And without going into a lot of detail, we went through more last week than we'll go through this morning. But without going through a lot of detail, the day of, or the year of Jubilee, which came around every 50 years, could only begin after the ending of the work of the Day of Atonement. And after the sacrifice had been made on the Day of Atonement for all of Israel, then the trumpet sounded which is a type of the gospel message, the heralding of that which the Messiah has done for us. Then the year of Jubilee began. So the church age is the example, or the fulfillment of the example, maybe that is a better way to say it, of the year of Jubilee. It's after Jesus died on the cross, making an atonement, literally redeeming all of us all of mankind to himself by simple faith. And then the gospel is preached. Remember Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believe it. That word salvation is an all-inclusive word. It means to rescue, deliver, make safe, make sound, and make whole or heal. Paul said that the gospel of Christ was the power for healing for the physical body as well as the other benefits of what Jesus died for. So of those three, Jesus is the fulfillment of each of the types. But why would the types connect healing with atonement? Turn with me to Numbers chapter 16. I'm going to go through the other two major ones, major examples or types that Jesus fulfilled. In Numbers chapter 16, now while you're turning there, let me put this into some kind of context. Remember, the 13th chapter of Numbers tells us the story of where Israel comes to the edge of the promised land. Moses sends his 12 spies in, one spy, one man to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of those 12 spies come back, 
saying the land is a land that flows with milk and honey, just like God said. But there are giants in the lands, and they're stronger than us. And so they delivered what the Bible calls an evil report. That evil report was basically, or could be summarized by saying, they said that we can't take the land. They said this problem is too big for God. Now, they wouldn't have come right out and say it in those terms, but that's what they said. So in chapter 14, it tells us that the congregation accepted the majority report. Caleb and Joshua said, God's on our side. We can take this. Not a big deal. We can do this. But Israel believed the majority report, the ten spies, and they wept. Now, even at that, it wasn't too late. They began crying out and saying, why has God brought us out in the wilderness to die? But Caleb and Joshua again, second time, quieted down the crowd and said, look, we can do this. Don't rebel against God. Don't worry about them, meaning the enemies in the land. Now, folks, let me, let me interject something here, too. Since these are types and shadows or examples for us, we need to understand what the promised land represents. Some people say the promised land represents heaven. But that can't be right because you don't have any battles to fight in heaven. There are no enemies there. Well, if the promised land is not an example, or if it does not represent heaven, what does it represent? It represents the day that we live in now. It represents the church age. Where the blessings of God are ours for the taking by faith. But there's a fight of faith. It's the only fight we're called and given to fight. But there is a fight of faith. And so Caleb and Joshua said, we can do this. Don't rebel against the Lord. But when they, in chapter 14 of Numbers, when the congregation bade stone them with stones and came out against them in the door of the tabernacle, that was the turning point. God says to Moses, step back and let me put an end to these people. Moses said, Don't, you can't do that, Father. All of Egypt will say that you weren't big enough to bring us into the promised land. And so he makes two statements. He says, I have pardoned according to your word, talking to Moses. But then he says this. He says, as truly as I live, the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now that phrase, as truly as I live, is usually um, thought of by us, by the reader, as just an introduction to what he's going to say. But that means something. That phrase, as truly as I live, needs to be examined and understood. Here's what it means. How does God live? He lives eternally, and he never changes. So when God says, uses that phrase, as truly as I live, he's saying here is an eternal and unchanging law. Here's an eternal and unchanging law. Now, the first thing he says about it, Concerning this unchanging and eternal law. He says the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Folks, that's a great promise. We should expect the glory of the Lord because it's an unchanging and eternal law that God declared. The second thing that he did a little bit further in the chapter, in verse 28, I believe it is, of Numbers 14. He said this. He said, as truly as I live, here's an eternal and unchanging law. It's another one. As truly as I live, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Now, folks, whether you realize it or not, here's the institution for all of Israel, all of the nation of Israel, of the law of faith. Remember, Jesus said to believe in your heart and to say with your mouth is how faith operates. So when God says, as truly as I live, here's the eternal and unchanging law. It happens to be the law of faith. I will do unto them as they have spoken in my ears. Now, when Israel hears that, when God declares, they're going to get exactly what they said. They're going to die in the wilderness. When they hear that and hear the length of the time, the 40 years of being in the wilderness... Then they try to change things and, and turn around. But it was too late. It was too late. 
They went out against the enemies the next day. Moses said, don't do it. They'll defeat you. God's not with you. But they went out anyway, and the army that they had, or the army that they deployed against the enemy in that place was defeated. Now, chapter 15 of Numbers starts in with, with information, and again, it's very detailed. Information about making offerings and sacrifices unto God. It's interesting to me that on the very heels of the greatest rebellion, the greatest act of disobedience, at least to that point in time, by the children of Israel, is followed with information about how to make sin offerings and trespass offerings and sacrifices and so forth. It almost seems out of place. Because right on the heels of this terrible rebellion, here's God treating the people as disobedient children that need to come back under the fold. Even these people that he was willing to destroy. Now he's telling them how to make an atonement for their sins. And then that brings us to chapter 16. Now chapter 16 is a, a wild ride. Because it starts off with this guy named Korah. He and his descendants, he and his family were of the tribe of Levi, which means they were priests unto God. They were not just no name, nobodies out there among the crowd. These were people that attended to God in the tabernacle daily. They had a great responsibility. And Korah gathers 250 princes with him. That means these are strong men. That means these are men of renown, men of great uh, reputation. They're also priests. And Korah comes before Moses and said, you take too much on yourself. Here you are lifting yourself up above the rest of us. We're priests just like Aaron. We should be able to talk to God without having you in the middle of things. And Moses lost it. He probably thinks back to just a little bit before when God said, step back, Moses, I'll consume these people. He's probably wishing he hadn't asked him not to. But Korah and these 250 princes of Israel come before God with accusations against Moses and Aaron. They're making accusations that Moses wants to lord it over them and he wants to be in control of them, which couldn't be further from the truth. Moses sought God many times, multiple times, to release him from the responsibility, but he's the one God chose. So the next day, they come to a place where Moses says, come tomorrow and bring censers or incense pots for everyone that's on your side. And so here are Korah's families and the families of all these princes that had joined themselves to him in this endeavor, to Korah in this endeavor. Moses says the next morning when everybody's gathered up, he says, now, if these guys died a normal death, or if they died the way that we've heard men die, then that would not prove that God is with me. But, and here's what he said, he said, if the earth opens up and swallows them alive and then comes back together on top of them, that would make you, talking to Israel, that would make you know that God is with me and that I represent him. Well, he had hardly got it out of his mouth when the earth opened up. But he did have time to tell everybody, if you don't want to go down with these people, you better stand over there. And some of them took heed and moved away. But the earth opened up and swallowed them, them and their possessions, their families, everybody that had committed this act of rebellion against God. And the earth closed up over on top of them. Now, on that day, Israel fell on their face and said, Moses, you're God's guy. Now we know. But I want you to see something else in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16, look at verse 41 with me. But on the morrow, folks, this is the next day. 
Wednesday they saw the earth open up and swallow Korah and all the people that joined themselves to them. Thursday morning they start complaining. And notice their complaint. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. God must be so proud. <laughs> and it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation and behold the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation and the Lord spoke unto Moses and said get you up from among this congregation that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, take a censer. Now I want you to realize he's doing something on his own, not because God told him to. He's doing something as a representative of the people before God. Moses said unto Aaron, take a censer and put fire therein from the altar and put on incense and go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. Now let me stop here long enough to, to say a couple of things. There are several times in the story that we didn't take time to mention where God consumed people. And oftentimes the Bible refers to that. The Old Testament translate that, translates it as a plague. Well, people hear the word plague and they think sickness and disease. So if the plague that came upon the Israelites was sickness and disease, when God said he did it, then God has to be the author of sickness and disease. Now, since God never changes, since there's no variableness in him, that means if God is the author of sickness and disease, he can't be the healer of sickness and disease. Now, Peter tries to clear that up for us in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So Peter says something that the early church understood clearly, that the whole of the church should understand. And that is sicknesses and diseases always of the devil, and God is always doing good. He can only be good. And one thing that the Bible identifies as good is healing. Now, we understand the difference between somebody that dies of cancer and somebody that, for example, lays in their bed at night smoking a cigarette, falls asleep, the cigarette catches the mattress on fire, and they die in the fire. We understand the difference. The end result's the same. But we understand in the second example that someone could have avoided their own death and the means of their death was certainly not sickness and disease. Same thing would be true if somebody uh, ignored the laws of electricity. And by standing in a puddle of water dealing with some electrical thing, got electrocuted and died. Well, we wouldn't consider that sickness and disease. Certainly death was the result. But not with sickness and disease. And if you look up the word that's translated plague, you'll find that it means a destruction. It means to consume. It means to bring an end to. So when the plague starts, this is not sickness and disease. This is because of due to the people's sin and disobedience, in this case murmuring against Moses. There was a consuming fire. I don't think that we can identify that literally. But it was the judgment of God, it was the wrath of God, and that's exactly what Moses calls it. It says it's the wrath of God. Now, folks, the justice of God, the justice that is required of man, rightly, righteously, by God himself, was only stayed in the Old Testament because of the mercy of God. Let me say this another way. Everybody deserved to die 
Everybody deserves to be judged of God and to die. Everybody. And the only reason that that wasn't the case, the only thing that stayed that or hindered that was the mercy of God. And again, he gave in great detail how sacrifices and how offerings were to be made so that he could show his mercy upon the people. Moses recognizes that this plague, this consuming thing, and really that even goes back to the Passover. The angel of death that took the firstborn of every household, that's not an evil spirit. That's an angel of God. But God in his mercy gave Israel the means and the method to avoid that judgment, which was the shedding of the Passover lamb, the shedding of blood of the Passover lamb. If God's going to take somebody out, he doesn't have to use sickness and disease. Now, thankfully, God doesn't take anybody out in these days. And that's because of the work of Jesus for all of mankind. But they didn't have that back then. So when Moses recognizes that the plague, which winds up taking 14,700 people's lives, when he realizes the judgment, the right judgment, the righteous judgment that's coming upon Israel, he knows that the only thing that can stop it is to make an atonement for the people. He knows that the only thing that can stop it is to make a substitutionary sacrifice of some means to cover the sins of the people. So Moses instructed Aaron to take this censer and he ran into the midst of the congregation and behold the plague was begun among the people and he put on incense and made an atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. He stood between the, between the dead and the living and it stopped it. The destruction that Israel was rightly due was stopped by the act of the atonement or by the atonement that was made. Well, we can certainly recognize that Jesus fulfills that type. The cross is literally the atonement or more accurately the redemptive work that stands between the dead and the living. Jesus fulfilled that type. Now look at Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21 tells us of another example of Israel's refusal to obey God. Let's start in verse 4. It tells us in the preceding verses, the first three, chapter, three verses of the chapter, that Israel vowed a vow to serve God if he would deliver them from their enemy, and he did. And here's how they repaid him. Verse 4, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to encompass or encircle the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Let me talk about that for a minute. The reason that I gave you the historical context of Numbers 13, 14, 15, and 16 is because beginning in chapter 14 and verse 28, when God says, as truly as I live, here's that eternal and unchanging law. As truly as I live, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. At that point, they are destined to spend 40 years in the wilderness for the purpose of dying Their carcasses fell in the wilderness. What hope as a people do they have? I've always looked at this as God missing some good opportunities to wipe these people out. And he was certainly willing to do that except for Moses' intervention. But look at it from their standpoint. What do they have to put hope in? 
Every one of them knows that within 40 years they're going to die. They know that they're going to die in the wilderness. I've never recognized or realized the, the, uh, the hopelessness of these people. I see them sinning against God time after time after time, and they know what they're doing. They know how they're bringing this tragedy on themselves. We'll read about it here in chapter 21 in just a moment. But these are people without any hope. People without hope do stupid things. People without hope do stupid things toward God. People without hope do stupid things to their own bodies and their own lives. And these are a people without hope. God still takes care of them. They see water come out of the rock. They see the manna that comes every morning except on the Sabbath day. They see God bring in quail because they complained about manna only. So God chokes them with so much quail they can't stand it. There are people without hope. Now here where it says they had to encompass or encircle the land of Edom. There were several occasions where the Edomites would not let Israel go through any part of their land. And God exacts judgment on them for that after the children of Israel come into the promised land. But they had to go a long way out of the way in chapter 21 to get to where they wanted to go. And I don't think there's any more telling description of how the devil works than this account. Sometimes things get so hard that people just become discouraged. And when they get discouraged, they don't know what to do. The devil's counting on you being, t being ignorant when you're discouraged. Because this is a textbook case, certainly the example that Paul said that it was. Here's an example of why the devil wants you to be discouraged. Let's go back to verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to encompass or encircle the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the Israel died. Now again, folks, anytime the Bible talks about God doing something, it speaks of the consuming or bringing to an end or the destruction that falls upon people as a result of the wrath of God and his righteous judgment. So here where it says the Lord sent fiery serpents, we can go to other places in the scripture, in the Psalms particularly, where it says the whole wilderness was full of fiery serpents. The reality is, as long as Israel walked in obedience to God, the fiery serpents never came into the camp. God didn't chase away all the fiery serpents in the whole land. But God had a protective barrier around Israel for as long as they walked with him and obeyed what he told them to do. But it's when they lifted that barrier through disobedience, through transgressions and sins, that's when they ran into trouble. Now, again, I'll prove it to you. I'll show you exactly what they understood by what they said. Verse 6 again, And the Lord sent literally a loud fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much of, Israel, much of the people of Israel died therefore the people came to Moses and said we have sinned now folks if they knew that this tragedy these fiery serpents coming into the land of, of uh, that Israel was encamped in if they knew the deaths that were caused by the poisonous snake bites 
Why wouldn't they have known that before they spoke against God? Well, of course they did. But they were so discouraged, they didn't think about what the consequence of their actions would be. This is one thing I see quite frequently in, in uh, dealing with people with sickness and disease. I've seen a lot of people start off in faith and they maintain their position of faith, their stand of faith for a period of time. But then the doctor's report says something like they're getting worse or the time drags on. Those are really the two major things that I've seen that cause people to be discouraged when it comes to sickness and disease. Now, I've seen people operate in different ways. I've seen people recognize that as the work of the devil to try to shake them from their position of faith, to try to move them off the word of God and the faith that they have in the word. But maybe more often than not, I see people get discouraged and start blaming God. I see people start questioning God. Why is it taking so long? Or if the doctor says it's getting worse, why isn't it working? Folks, the eternal and unchanging law is always the same. God deals with us according to what we speak in his ear. So the people recognize, and, and th here's the tragedy for me. So many people recognize what Israel came to understand, but just like them, they recognize it so, so much later than what they should have. There have been times, I'll just use my own example, there have been times in many years past, not concerning the present situation I'm in, but in other things, there have been times where my body has screamed out, wanting to scream out, why isn't this working, God? There have been times where I felt so under pressure and so influenced, and I knew it was the devil, but so pressured and so influenced. And knowing that my flesh would feel so much better if I just got it out some way or another. But the devil knows that if he can get you there, he can effectively end the game for you. There are going to be times where all of us are faced with situations that are going completely contrary, 180 degrees differently than what we're believing for. And the question is, what are you going to do when that time comes? May I recommend to you that you not wait till that time comes and see what you're going to do, but that you decide up front. I know how the devil operates. There's only one road he travels, and this is it. He's not even after your lives, folks. He's after your faith. Whether he's able to destroy us is a side, side thought or a side note. The real thing that he wants to do is rob the children of God of what really belongs to them. So what happened? The people recognize that it's their sin that's brought this on them. So they said to Moses, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us, and Moses prayed for the people. Now, folks, if there's ever a people that didn't deserve deliverance, this is it. I mean, time after time after time, they rebel against God. Enough so that on several occasions, God says, okay, Moses, back up. Here we go. Every time Moses says, you can't do that, people will say, you're not strong enough to deliver us into the promised land. In that sense, Moses is a type of Jesus to make intercession for the people, to deliver them from their own destructions. So what does God do? against these rebellious and disobedient people. He continues to show his mercy. 
The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, I want you to get that, everyone that is bitten, this belongs to whoever will fulfill the requirements. And this is a type of Jesus too. Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. So I want you to realize, folks, there's two things in play here. He's giving them a remedy for their sin. And he's providing for their healing for the physical body. Now here's a type that Jesus fulfills. Jesus said himself in John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then he goes on in verse 16 to, to, to give everybody's favorite Bible verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus is clearly talking about his work on the cross. And he identifies. Jesus is the identifier himself. It's not left for us to say, well, here's why this fulfills, why what Jesus did fulfills the Old Testament type. Jesus takes that type and declares that it's him. So it says that Moses made this fiery serpent of brass on the pole. And God said that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, when he beheld the type of Jesus, he lived. Now, folks, notice that the, the um, responsibility is on the people. God could just as easily have said, well, okay, Moses, I'll tell you what. I'll just wave my hand over all of Israel and every snake will leave and every person will be healed. But instead, God instructed Moses on how to make an atonement for Israel to provide for forgiveness of the sins of speaking against God and against Moses and also to heal their bodies. So folks, if healing is not in the atonement, why was healing for everyone in the Old Covenant? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, that we have a better covenant established upon better promises. Now, if, as some of, some of the church world says, if Jesus healed when he was here on the earth to prove that he was the Son of God, but then that healing was done away with after the first generation of the church when the last apostle died. Look at all that the people of God lost. If healing is not part of the eternal work of God that Jesus accomplished for us as our substitute. See, now everybody gets that part. Anybody that believes Jesus died for the sins of the world, they recognize, they will quickly acknowledge that Jesus paid the price for sins as our substitute. And that's the reason that all we have to do is reach out and take hold of his forgiveness by faith. But if Jesus did the same thing when it comes to sickness and disease, then that means healing is available to anybody and everybody simply by taking hold of it in faith. Look with me to Matthew chapter 8. Let me wrap this up. Matthew chapter 8. It's as if God knew that there would be controversy about sickness and disease. It's as if he, he understood that there would be a dispute or a debate about whether or not healing is in the atoning work, the substitutionary work of Jesus. Verse 16, Matthew 8, 16. When, he, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and, that, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now Isaiah said that in chapter 53 that we read to begin the service. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our pains. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. Now what part of this is fulfilled by what Jesus is doing? See, another contortion of church doctrine says that Jesus fulfilled all these things, made an end of all these things here in Matthew chapter 8. Well, if that's true, then anybody that's healed after Matthew chapter 8 couldn't have been healed by the Word of God or by the Son of God. If this is saying that it was fulfilled at this moment, and that's when people start backing up and say, well, it doesn't mean that it was fulfilled at that moment. It means it was fulfilled in Jesus so that it came to an end with Jesus. But then what do you do about the healings in the book of Acts? They understood that healing was to carry on. Peter talks about, again, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Peter understood that that was still going on in his day. And you can't find anywhere where it says these things will cease. You can't find any solid, clear Bible evidence that these things have ceased or ever will cease until at least the end of the church age. Well, then what was the fulfillment? Folks, the only thing that could have been fulfilled by Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 and verses 16 and 17 was that all were healed. Let's read it again. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick. See, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy was not just the fact that Jesus healed. It was not just the fact that Jesus healed on this occasion. It was the revelation inspired by the Holy Ghost. He's the one that gave Matthew the information to write. The fulfillment was that all were healed. The fulfillment was the proof that healing is a part of the atoning work of Jesus and therefore is available for everybody. Finally, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, beginning verse 14. Is any sick among you? That's a question you wouldn't write to the church today. The assumption is there shouldn't be any sick among us, among the church. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. This word pray is just simply a general word for worship. It doesn't mean to inquire of the Lord anything. It doesn't mean to ask anything. It means even for the sick, there's something to worship God about. Now, is there something to worship God about the fact that they're sick? If that were the case, then James would have no further instruction for the sick. He would have said something to the effect that those of you that are dealing with sickness just rejoice because that's God's will and plan and purpose for you. He's teaching you some deeper meaning through this condition. But he gives further instruction. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray or worship over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now this word prayer is a different word. This word prayer means vow or declaration. So notice the instruction that's given to the church on how to pray the prayer of faith for the sick to declare that they're healed. Based on what? Based on the atoning work of Jesus. Based on the fact that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses along with our sins and with his stripes we were healed. Verse 15 again, and the prayer, the vow, the declaration of faith shall save the sick. The word save is the word sozo. It's the word we referred to earlier when we were talking about John, I'm uh, talking about Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That word salvation is the same word saved here. It means to rescue, deliver, to make safe, make sound, and to make whole or heal. Well, being saved from sickness is being healed, isn't it? Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The vow, the declaration of faith shall save the sick, shall heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. Now notice verse 15, the last part of verse 15. It says, and if, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. There are some times where just like Israel and their foolishness brought destruction against them. There are some times where our sins bring sickness and disease on us. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we referred to concerning the Passover. He said many are weak and sickly among them and many sleep. Many have died prematurely, in other words, not discerning the Lord's body. So in their case, their sins, their attitude toward the body of Jesus which was broken for us opened the door to sickness and disease. So that is sometimes the case. It's not usually the case. Now you can well expect the devil to be sitting on your shoulder telling you that it's your case. Well, if it is, notice that God made provision for it. See, if the sins that these people may have committed opened the door to sickness and disease in their lives, God didn't consider that to be a disqualifying factor for them to be healed. Because the same vow, the same declaration of faith that heals the sick forgives sins. Because Jesus died for our sins and our sicknesses. So the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Well, if the, the sinning individual that opened the door to sickness and disease here shouldn't be disqualified by their sin from receiving their healing, why should yours? Why should yours? Now, folks, remember where we started. I'm trying to come full circle with this. Remember where we started with the question, is healing a part of the atonement? As we said before, the big debate among church peoples, denominations, and whoever else is interested. The issue is whether or not healing is a part of the atoning work of Jesus. Because if it is, as we said before, healing just like forgiveness of sins would have to be available for everybody just simply by taking hold of it in faith. Now, if healing is part of the atoning work of Jesus and all that is necessary is to take hold of it by faith, expecting to receive, wouldn't that fit in exactly with what James is giving instruction toward? The declaration, the vow of faith that heals the sick, that prayer of faith could only heal the sick if Jesus already paid the price for sickness and disease. James seems to be of the opinion that healing was a part of the atoning work of Jesus. Because he says the cure for the sickness that comes against our bodies is the same cure as if sin has come against our soul. And that simply is the prayer of faith. He doesn't question the severity of the sickness. He doesn't condition his statements on short-term sicknesses or minor sicknesses or any other qualifying factor. He says it the same for both sin and sickness. The prayer of faith shall deliver them. The prayer of faith shall deliver them. Now, what is the prayer of faith? It's the declaration of that Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease along with sin. And therefore, by faith in his work, his substitutionary work, he bore my sickness, he bore my sin, so I need not bear either one. And he said, the Lord shall raise him up. That takes on a variety of methods or ways or means. But whichever way God chooses to do it, we've got to guarantee that he does it. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's just lift our hands.
unto the one who took sin and sickness upon himself. We bless you, Lord. We magnify your holy name. We thank you, Lord. We bless you with all of our soul. And we forget not all your benefits. You forgive all our iniquities. You heal all our diseases. You redeem our life from destruction. And crown us with loving kindness and tender mercy. Because we've set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you set us on high. When we call upon you, you answer us. You are with us in trouble. You rescue us and you deliver us. With long life, you satisfy us and show us your salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with your stripes, we were healed. If we were healed, we are healed now. That's what we believe, Father. And that vow, that declaration of faith, that healing is ours no matter what it looks like, but according to the word of God, healing is ours. That declaration of faith brings our healing in. We bless you, Lord. And we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your healing mercy that never fails and never comes to an end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his healing mercy endures forever. Hallelujah. Well, if you want another dose, come on back for healing school tonight, and we'll do it again. God bless you. Have a great day.